It's like we're, uh, if ever there was a Sunday not to forget my water, right? It's like we're getting a sneak preview of what I'll sound like in 30 years. <laughs> if the Lord gives me the days. Uh, I, I was thinking this morning, we don't have time for this, but here we go. Uh, Spurgeon's got a book, it's about this thick, it's called Lectures to My Students. And it's a... Um, I don't know, a collage of a bunch of different lectures that he gave at the, at the seminary that he'd started. And he's got one <clears throat> where he talks about the care of the voice. And he mocks guys that use lozenges and uh, have weak chests. <laughs> Spurgeon was a smoker, too. That's the thing that kills me. Um, I'm so thankful for microphones and speakers this morning. All right, I'm going to take for granted as we roll along through the Advent series that uh, most of us are familiar with the Christmas story, uh, that I'm going to take it for granted that most of you have heard what I call the low-hanging fruit messages that come from these texts. So as things occur to you, while I'm preaching and you think, oh, he didn't even mention that. He didn't even talk about that. It's not because I don't know. It's because I think you already do. And uh, maybe it'll come up in a future <clears throat> message, a uh, future Christmas sermon. Uh, but I, I want, I'm just taking the track that I'm taking. And I don't want you to take it personally if I didn't touch on your favorite point. Okay? We all right? Thank you. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel <clears throat> was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to, dis- to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Turn uh, back in your Old Testament to Judges chapter 6. So that's going to be before Samuel. It'll be before Kings and Chronicles. So if you're seeing those, keep going back. Judges 6 is a, another well-known story of the calling of Gideon I don't know if there are more felt board Sunday school stories about Gideon or David and Goliath, but it's got to be a popular one. I'm going to start in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is Judges 6.1. The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For wherever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents. They came like locusts in number. Them and their camels, they couldn't be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. 
When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at, at, (laughs) I even practiced this, Ophrah. <clears throat> which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, whose son was Gideon and was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. You got the picture? What he's doing? Beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the land of Midian. Do I not send you? Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So verse 12, you've got the angel of the Lord saying, The Lord is with you. In verse 13, you've got... Gideon saying, it sure doesn't feel like it. And verses 1 through 6, I think, offer us a pretty clear picture of why it doesn't feel like it. So you've got your own testimony and your own personal history. Or, I should say, or your own personal history. I have a testimony, and the reason that I call it a testimony is because it does not begin and end with me and what I've done. It begins and ends with God and what he's done, and I've been involved in it. If you don't have a testimony, then you just have a personal history. You have what you've done. Um, My testimony includes uh, a lot of things. I mean, I have to kind of I have to tell it differently depending on my audience because it would have different ratings as far as parental guidance suggested, depending on who I'm talking to. So when you get to the point in my testimony where God most obviously intervenes in my life and begins to change me from the inside out, it's not like I was in a ditch with a needle sticking out of my arm, but there's, there, like I could tell you that there was a lot of evil leading up to that moment where God intervened. And I think, I think everybody who's walked with the Lord for a long time can say, yes, there have been many times in my life where I was engaged in evil and then God intervened, right? 
So the story of Israel in Egypt is a little bit different than that. Because it paints this picture, Exodus paints this picture of the poor, the poor Hebrews, man. They're just enslaved. And uh, they're doing the best they can with what they've got. And it just keeps going from bad to worse. And so what we do, if we're aware of our personal history and that all that we were engaged in up until the point where the Lord intervened is we go, I wish my testimony was more like Israel's in Egypt where I was just enslaved and God intervened and saved me. And what I would point out to you is when you read this passage in Luke 1 where Mary, the little virgin, who's, you know, by all accounts, never done anything wrong, betrothed to a man named Joseph, both of them descendants of uh, you know, Abraham or the a lineage of the priesthood um, and the Lord intervenes in her life. I, I think maybe we're not fully appreciating what her condition is when this happens because she's a virgin, right? So that means she's pure as the wind-driven snow, right? But here's the thing. Will anybody in here who has a testimony besides me, will anybody in here stand up and say, I, like Mary, or like the Israelites in Egypt, was pure as the wind-driven snow, just doing the best I could, and then God showed up in my life to reward me for my good behavior? No. Oh. So I reference Judges 6 because it gives you a little brief overview of the history of the people of Israel and where in fairly short order after Joshua passes away, they end up. They sin, they worship false gods and the Lord begins to discipline them, right? And the Lord's discipline in the case of a nation uh, well, the nation of Israel is they, they're overrun. I mean, they cease to exist for all intents and purposes as the people of God. By the way, we haven't even gotten to the place where a temple's been built or a castle or whatever you want to call it for the king. We don't even have a king. We just have these people in this priesthood and they've already run buck wild into sin. And now they've been overrun by the Midianites and the Amalekites because God's disciplining them. And I, I just want to say, um, sometimes the reason we don't feel that we're very favored by God is because we are engaged in habits of sin and he's disciplining us. It doesn't feel like favor, but even that is. Because Hebrews 12 tells us every son whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. But if you're without discipline, then you're not sons. You're illegitimate. So that's first. I'm not, I'm not disappointed to hear that that's what you assume is happening every time your life gets hard. If every time your life gets hard, you're like, oh, no. What did I do? That's Okay. Because you probably did something, right? So Mary, little, little virgin Mary, 
is a sinner too. I don't know what she's done. The Lord isn't pleased to have Luke recount her personal history. It begins when the Lord shows up in her life and the fact that God shows up in Mary's life and she has the same response of heart that Zechariah did last week tells me everything I need to know about Mary. Sorry, Catholics. She was a sinner too. And when sinners meet God or circumstances that make us cognitive, is that a word? Cognitively aware of God, it's not unusual for us to get a little troubled or a lot troubled. I know you're going to say, it's the same sermon as last week. Well, it's a similar story, right? So check this out. It's not always that you're in trouble. <clears throat> Consider what happened to Moses after Moses and Aaron first confronted Pharaoh. This is Exodus 5, 18. Well, we'll start at 19. The foreman of the people of Israel <clears throat> saw that they were in trouble when the Egyptians said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. So the foreman met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you've not delivered your people at all. Uh, didn't God call Moses miraculously with a burning bush and tell him you're going to go and be my emissary because I'm going to tell Pharaoh you're cutting my people loose? Didn't Moses push back and go, I don't, I can't. I don't speak, I don't talk good. And the Lord said, well, we'll have Aaron speak for you. And so then fast forward to Aaron and Moses. Moses has got this stick that turns into a snake and he can pick it up and it turns back into a stick. And they go in and they confront Pharaoh and they say, let the people go three days into the wilderness that they may worship me. And then the outcome is Pharaoh's like, no, I've got a better idea. Let's increase their workload because obviously y'all have too much time on your hands to invent new reasons to slack off. And we're not even going to provide straw anymore for the bricks. You're going to have to go find that yourself. But you better make the same number of bricks. And then they start beating the foreman. So God shows up, and it's wonderful in the burning bush. But God showing up is not so wonderful two chapters later when the people are being beat for not doing more work. You tracking with me? When David's hiding in the cave, writing Psalms of Sorrow, 55, 56, 54 probably, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't like seem like he feels very favored of God. So Mary, like Zechariah, was troubled. And in both cases, God was beginning an amazing work of blessing. Uh, and then they would be involved. So let's look at back in Luke 1, verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. And he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, nothing's been said yet to Mary about the unnatural nature of her pregnancy. She is engaged, so this isn't bad news that this angel's telling her. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, if you were engaged to be married and an angel showed up and said, hey, someday you're going to have a kid and he's going to be amazing, you'd be like, thanks, right? And if you're anything like me, and I believe that you are, when you get some good news, I don't know if I want to ask a question or make an accusation. Let's do it this way. When you get some good news, somebody thinks you did a great job at work or school, uh, if you're a homemaker and you find out that younger homemakers look up to you, Whatever, you get some good news. How quickly does your testimony become your personal history? When things are going good, all of a sudden it's James's story. I'll admit that. Like, yeah, I'm killing it. So Mary gets this good news. And thanks be to God, the angel... Uh, finishes the story. But look at her response in 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? It's almost like she suspected maybe something else going on here, right? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, <coughs> Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Uh, God's favor toward you. Part of the reason it's troubling a lot of times when, when or you're, you struggle to believe that he has favor, grace toward you is because his favor toward you is about his own plans, not yours. His favor towards you is about his own purposes, not your personal history. So what you're engaged in, and I'll use this illustration a lot of times because there's a difference between telling the same story from the pulpit over and over and over and over again and using the same illustration over and over and over and over again, right? (laughs) There is. Trust me. I I don't know what movie I was. It was probably The Patriot. I stopped focusing on the main character in one of the battle scenes. This was years ago. And just tried to pick out some people in the background to watch and see how things are going for them. 
And surprisingly, many nameless good guy faces perish in the battle. But we are, we are just set up culturally to believe that, I mean, this is where I communicate best. Elevated above other people with spotlights shining on me, right? Why is that? Because I think more highly of myself than I ought. that's our culture. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. So what sometimes happens is guys, instead of preaching the gospel, come up and share their personal history. Instead of telling God's story, they tell their own because they're overly interested in their own story rather than God's. But you see this reflected in the culture too, right? The social media highlight reel, what's that about? Sometimes it's cleverly disguised, but it's about my personal history, what I'm doing. How amazing am I? If you look in the background, you'll actually see yourself. Because the main character in God's story is Jesus Christ. And what he's doing in his victory. And a lot of us are going to die in the opening scenes of the movie. And it's okay. we got to be okay with that, right? It's not about me. So Mary asks this question. How's this going to happen since I'm a virgin? There's a real simple difference between Mary's question and Zechariah's. Excuse me. Zechariah, in last week's passage, if you want to go up and look at it, you can. He says, how will I know? Gabriel gets done telling him the news, and Zechariah's response is, how will I know? And I said last week, because an angel just told you, doofus, right? Mary's question is, how will this be? One presumes the need of proof. The other is just asking about logistics, And there's nothing wrong with asking God questions about, practically speaking, how's this going to work? So if your life in its perfect harmony is otherwise disrupted by something difficult, and you realize that you're between a rock and a hard place, and you're going to have to make a tough decision, it's not faithlessness for you to get on your knees and cry out to your Father in heaven and say, I don't understand how this is going to bring you glory or do me good. It's not faithlessness to do that. Or to ask, how's this going to work? And the answer is, found in 37. Let's put that up on the screen, just verse 37. Yeah. That's how it's going to work. Whatever you're going through, whatever's happening to you that seems like, I don't, all right, so I'm not making this about my personal history. I realize this is part of my testimony. That what I'm living out is the story of God working in my life to affect whatever he wants to in the lives of those around me. But I'm not really seeing how this is 
good for him, how it's going to bring him glory, or, or good for me, how it's, going to, how it's going to sanctify me and draw me closer to him. Because there are many times we enter into seasons of life where things are so profoundly challenging and difficult, it actually kind of feels like it reduces our faith rather than enhances it, right? And the answer is, nothing's impossible with God. In Luke 18, a ruler approaches Jesus and says to him, this is Luke 18, 18, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and honor your father and mother. And the ruler said to him, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Maybe I've waited too long. Um, two sermons, well, one and three quarters, to say that I'm not talking about your bank account, your health, or your other earthly endeavors. When I talk about a troubled heart, I'm talking about when your heart is gripped with the fear, the shame, and the guilt that comes as a result of your own sin. There's nothing more troubling than that. Now, <clears throat> can God use circumstances to bring you to the place where you recognize, oh, I've made a mess of things? Yes, and he often does. But it's not the circumstances that are most troubling when you are a child of God. And the Holy Spirit is operative within you. And you've had, at least at some point in your life, a relationship over some span of time with Jesus Christ through prayer, by faith, through the word. And circumstances make you aware that you have sinned or you've been drifting. There's a part of you that will go, why would God want anything to do with me now? And so, if I could, just invite you back to the beginning of this message where I leapt for no particular reason into Judges chapter 6. And we saw God describe how the people of Israel had behaved and what he does to bring them to their senses right? They're overrun by Midianites and, and Amalekites. They're like locusts in the land, devouring every resource. 
if I could just interject, we are overrun in the United States of America by socialists and communists who don't understand the basic principles of if a man doesn't want to work, he doesn't need to eat. And the reason that we're overrun by these locusts of leftism, postmodernism, gross individualism to the point where we're not even sure what gender we are anymore. That's gross individualism, by the way. The reason for that is because we have rejected the truth of the gospel. We've rejected it as a culture. And so God is disciplining us as a culture. And here we are doing the best we can as believers, plugging away in the midst of a culture that is dying and decaying. So it's not like we don't know what it was like for Gideon as he's hiding in the wine press, beating out the wheat. We get it, kind of. Well, what happened? An angel showed up. Angel of the Lord showed up to Gideon. Now, Gideon, I don't know if he in particular had been praying for deliverance. I'm assuming so. But the text did say that God's people had cried out for deliverance from the Midianites and the Amalekites. And so in spite of the fact that they brought this on themselves, they cry out for help. And what does God do? What does the Father in heaven do? He shows up to Gideon, who's not a mighty man of valor. He's not. And so maybe you think, if I was a mighty man of valor, God could probably use me too. Well, he wasn't a mighty man of valor. He just wasn't. Neither was Mary, come to think of it. When I talk about a troubled heart, I'm talking about when your heart is gripped with the fear, the shame, and the guilt that comes from your own sin and what you've contributed to this culture. That debt that you owe is impossible. It was less impossible when you first came to faith because at least when you first came to faith, you could say, I didn't know any better. Now you know better and look what you've done. That debt is impossible, but the good news is verse 39, Luke 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In Genesis 3, uh, of, this is a well-known story, but I'm going to read it because the order of things is important. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. 
And he said to the woman, did God actually say, wait, 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 who did he say it to? Mm -hmm. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? Of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. You won't. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In 1 Timothy 2, 13, it says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. <clears throat> and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Before I make my actual point, let me just note that elsewhere in the Bible, Paul specifically has no problem blaming Adam for the fall of man into sin. In Romans 5.12, he says, Therefore, just as uh, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. In 1 Corinthians 15.21, he says, For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Yet, Genesis 3, 1 Timothy 2, both point out in pretty clear terms it was Eve who started the ball rolling with sin. You say what you want about Adam should have been paying attention, but the fact is there's some room for specific blame to be placed on the fairer sex for what went down in Genesis 3. The Bible leaves room for that. And every misogynistic preacher who delights in pointing that out has probably failed to notice something that I'm going to point out to you right now. Because if you fast forward a couple thousand years from the moment that the woman sins and the curse is pronounced, if you just could just make it to Luke 1, when Gabriel, who ministers in... In, in heaven to the Lord God is sent down to announce the coming of the Redeemer. He doesn't find some old man in a temple to tell it to. He goes to a woman. And I would point out, he, he does not work out redemption through the natural means. Instead, he is pleased through some miraculous work wherein the divine character and attributes of God are visited upon the mortal egg of a human sinful woman so that the resulting child is fully God, fully man. But all of that happens in the womb of a woman. Here's what I see. The woman may have been the one who first sinned, but God condescends to say, and so it shall be her that I will bless to carry the Redeemer. Because what God does is he undoes the curse exactly where it started. It's not misogynistic. She carries the Redeemer. 
not David, a, a man after God's own heart. He didn't carry the Redeemer. Not Gideon, not Joshua, not Moses, not Joseph, none of the prophets, a little girl, a little virgin. Mary's shame in Eve is undone by God selecting a woman to carry the Messiah. And the point is that it was unbelief that drove Eve to eat the fruit that had been commanded. Right? Yeah, you won't die. God knows in the day you eat of it. Who does she believe? She believes the serpent. Who does she not believe? She doesn't believe God. And look what happens when Gabriel announces his message to Mary. She believes. Right? She asks a logistical question, but she believes. And then she goes to visit Elizabeth. And what does Elizabeth say to her? Look at the end, uh, verse 45, Luke 1, 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Don't buy the lie that just because you're a proven failure, and you are, and so am I. Don't buy the lie that just because you're a proven failure, God can't or won't redeem you, or God can't or won't use you. Moses was a stuttering shepherd with an anger problem, fleeing a manslaughter charge. When God got hold of him, he was no fierce leader. Gideon was hiding in the wine press, doubting every word God had ever said, terrified of the enemies who were oppressing Israel when God found him. He was no mighty man of valor. And Mary was a sinful woman, just like Eve and every daughter that proceeded from her. When God found her and said, I'm going to use you. The thing we have to remember, the reason it's hard for us to believe this is because we forget we are not the center of God's story. He is. If you can remember that, you can relax a little bit. Breathe. <laughs> yeah, you screwed up everything at work and got fired. The good news is, the good news is, the universe is not held together by whether or not you never screw up. Right? And nothing is impossible with God. He can redeem any situation, any way that he wants to. I mean, ultimately, I believe there will be a, a new heaven and a new earth. Because he's going to redeem what he made the first time that we corrupted. He's going to remake it. He's doing it with every person who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want God to use you, <clears throat> in spite of your past, in spite of like five minutes ago, I don't know, in spite of your guilt and shame, the Bible is full of people just like us who are showing us that God pours out grace and mercy on sinners. It's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. 
When we first got together here at Springfield, I took us through a, um, a series that I later entitled An Economy of Mercy. Um, it was like a gospel literacy or fluency thing. And one of the most important concepts that I think I ever got a hold of, and this was much, this was after a while after I had started preaching, really. Wish I could go back and delete some sermons. Um, because when I got a hold of this concept, it changed the way that I preached. I made you all repeat after me. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. There's a character issue. There's a nature issue that you can't fix. You can't undo. You can't repair. The good news is, with God, nothing's impossible. And what he has said is, if you confess your sins, I'll be faithful and I'll be righteous to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Everyone who cries out to God for mercy, repenting, turning away from sin and confessing it to him, he is pleased with. He's pleased with that. Don't let the devil hold you in bondage to a lie. Amen? Let's pray.